0: Now, as uh, I've already mentioned, we are beginning this evening a new evening series in the Old Testament prophecy of uh, Malachi. Uh, So we're just going to read the first five verses of Malachi chapter 1. If you'd have that open in front of you, if you have a Bible either in physical copy or on an electronic device, please uh, do have that open um, and we'll read verses 1 to 5 of Malachi chapter (coughs) 1. Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen. Well, please do keep that open in front of you as we think about it over the next few minutes. Before we do that, though, let me pray again, just briefly, for our next few minutes. The psalmist writes, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Our God and Father, we praise you as a gracious and a loving God. And we ask that as we consider your word together over the next few minutes, you would please help us to understand what your love is really like. That in doing so, we would be stirred to love you as you really are. And to serve you wholeheartedly. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake amen amen well let me begin with a question um, are you wandering from god are you wondering from god now i'm well aware that that's a fairly direct question uh, to begin with but let me be bold enough to follow up with another uh, how would you know if you were wondering or not What what kind of evidence, mentally, are you weighing up if you were to try and answer that kind of question? I wonder if if you might mentally carry out a quick church attendance check because, you see, wandering from God would surely involve a drop-off in your willingness to gather together with God's people and to worship him. Perhaps you could carry out a quick audit of, of your money or of your time How willing am I, or not, to give to God's work? Again, a drop-off in that can be a good marker of how committed we might be to God and to his service, can't it? Or perhaps you're in a position of Christian leadership of some kind, and uh, for you to wander from God would be pretty obvious, because you would have to step back from that, wouldn't you? There's no way that you could be in that kind of position of of leading God's people at the same time as wandering from him, could you? And so when I ask you whether you're wandering from God and you you kind of compile the evidence, you're still worshipping regularly perhaps, you're still giving money and time to Christian things, you might even be in an active position of Christian leadership. Look at the evidence, Johnny. I couldn't possibly be wandering from God Or could you? We're starting, as I've mentioned, this series in the book of Malachi this evening. Malachi wrote to God's people around 400 years or so before the birth of Jesus. And if you know anything about the history of God's dealings with his people, well, you'll know that that pretty much since day dot, God's people had repeatedly wandered from him. So much so that eventually, as an act of judgment, Jerusalem, which was their capital city, was destroyed. And the people of God were taken hundreds of miles away from their home to live in another city called Babylon. Seventy years or so later, God had brought a small band of his people back to the land of Israel and they had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They'd rebuilt the temple again. And by the time Malachi writes, the mortar on the rebuilt temple is probably just about dry. We're, we're maybe a generation or so after that return. And the exile is in the rear view mirror. It's time for a fresh start. But you see, old habits die hard. And to notice that, if you have your Bible open in front of you, just flick over the page to Malachi chapter 3 with me for a moment. There's a verse in Malachi 3 that kind of captures the burden of the whole book. It's chapter 3, verse 7. Let's just read that along with me. Chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. See, God's objective for this whole book of Malachi is to call his wandering people back to himself. Now that hopefully makes sense so far, but it might sound quite a lot like, well, a lot of other Old Testament prophets. Again, if, you, if you're familiar with any other Old Testament prophets, many of them were written to call God's people back to himself. So what's distinctive about Malachi? Well, there are a few distinctives, but I'm going to draw your attention to two that are particularly going to help us both this evening and over the course of the next few weeks as we look to apply this ancient book to our own lives. it's see, if, if drift or if wandering from God is, is the chronic disease that affects God's people, well, what makes Malachi different are firstly the symptoms of that disease, what people's drift looks like from the outside. And I've already touched on those in this brief introduction. In Malachi, God's people are wandering from him, but they're kind of doing it in a very unwandery way. See, they haven't stopped worshipping and offering sacrifices to God. They haven't cancelled their direct debits in support of God's work if they had those then. And they haven't stopped listening to teaching from their spiritual leaders. And in fact, their spiritual leaders who themselves are wandering, well, they haven't stepped down from their roles of leadership All of which is to say this drift, it doesn't look very drifty. It doesn't look very explosive. It doesn't look like we might expect wandering from God to look. Instead, well, it looks quite like half-hearted religion. And that's where Malachi, I think, will have real teeth for us as we think about it together over the next few weeks. That's one of the distinctives of Malachi, the symptoms of drift. And the second distinctive we'll see more clearly, actually, in our passage for this evening. See, if the disease is drifting from God, then the second distinctive of Malachi is the pathology. It's the underlying cause of that drift. What is leading God's people to drift from God in Malachi's day? Now, I I wonder if you've ever found yourself falling victim to a blame shift I was in that situation uh, last summer. We were on on, uh, summer holiday uh, and we had just bought some ice creams to eat whilst we were walking near the beach. And um, the youngest member of our family was uh, quite slow to eat his, glacially slow in fact, uh, despite plenty of coaxing and offers of help and, and even the occasional warning. And eventually in the warmth of the summer sun, You can imagine what happened the whole ice cream actually just slipped and fell right off of the cone and he was left holding a dry cone it was a bit of a sad sight it was sad for all of us but for one of us the one who'd lost his ice cream the sadness quickly turned to to frustration and then to blame and in fact i was found to be the one at fault for the fact that his ice cream was no longer edible That's a bit of a silly example of blame shifting. But it can be much more serious than that, can't it? I wonder if you've perhaps been blamed by a colleague for the mistake that they actually made. Being blamed for the breakdown in a relationship when it was so obviously the other person's fault see, being wrongly accused is bad enough in itself, but for that to come from the person who actually perpetrated the wrong, that is galling, isn't it? It's it's really unjust. And yet, you see, that's the sense of what was happening in Malachi's day. There has been a relationship breakdown, a breakdown in the covenant relationship, the promise relationship between God and his people. And you see, it's as clear as the nose on your face that that breakdown is solely the fault of the people. And yet they're pinning the blame on him. He's the one who's breaking the relationship, not us. So as we read through the book of Malachi, we'll see that they get upset that God won't seem to accept their offerings and to bless them, even though they're rebelling against him. They accuse him of being unjust and letting wrongdoers get away with evil. Ultimately, they think that they're doing their bit for God, but he isn't keeping his end of the bargain. He's the one who's causing the relationship breakdown. See, both the symptoms of the drift and the pathology are the underlying causes of the drift, they kind of set Malachi apart. And as I mentioned before, though, help us as we come to apply it to ourselves and help us to see that actually, whilst it might feel in many ways quite remote from us, written 400 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus, it is very, very pertinent indeed. Now, that's something of the big picture of the book, but that is probably just enough waggling on the T from me. It is helpful to have the big picture in mind, though, nose. So we jump into these first few verses in the book, and let me explain what I mean under our first heading for this evening, which is chapter 1, verses 1 to 3a, the character of God's love. Now, just look with me again at verse 1 for a moment. The oracle of the word of the Lord... To Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. It's a very powerful opening, isn't it? And also a bit of a surprising opening. Given all that I've just told you about what God's people were like during Malachi's day. Remember the burden of the rest of the book. It's written to address an unfaithful people. And so actually we might expect God to begin by reading them the riot act. But instead he starts with this. I have loved you. But if the beginning is surprising because of how warm it is, the opposite could be said of what comes next. Verse 2. But you say, how have you loved us? Now, uh, we we might take that question at face value and, and, and think that the people are genuinely asking to be reminded of the ways in which God has loved them in the past, but actually that would be to misunderstand the question. And we know it would be to misunderstand the question because this is the first of multiple questions throughout the book that are directed to God. And each of them, are not so much questions as they are accusations. In fact, one writer helpfully uh, captures the tone of verse 1 by having his readers imagine a parent telling their teenage child that they love them. Now, it's fair to say that depending on the teenager, you might expect a lukewarm response uh, to that kind of statement, but what you wouldn't expect is for the teenager to fire back with the words, prove it. That would be hurtful, wouldn't it? It be hurtful because it implies that you as a parent are lying, that you don't really love them. And hurtful because it completely ignores all of the evidence of love built up over years and years of care, the, the sleepless nights and the dirty nappies and the sacrifices made to raise them and love them and care for them. And yet yeah, that's the sense of the question in Malachi chapter 1. It isn't so much a request for information as it's a challenge. I have loved you, says the Lord. And the people reply, prove it. Now just keep that illustration of the parent with a stroppy teenager in your mind. And have a think about how you might respond if you were that parent. You... you, might well be more gracious than I am. I suspect you are. If it were me, I think I'd be tempted to give them a pretty detailed account of all of the ways in which I had loved and cared for them. To be honest, I'd probably have some kind of spreadsheet made up just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And we might expect a similar kind of response from God. See, he could respond to that question in Malachi 1 by reminding them of the Exodus when he brought his people out of slavery He could remind them that he'd provided them with a land, with a king, with himself, and each time they've rejected him, but he's pursued them nonetheless. Or he could even remind them of their much more recent history, the fact that he's brought them back from exile, back from Babylon, though they don't deserve it, and he's established them here in Jerusalem again. There are examples after examples after examples of how God has loved his people. All of which makes the example that he does choose seem like a pretty strange one. I wonder if you noticed that. Look with me again at verse 2. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. It's a surprising illustration of love, isn't it? If if, if you don't know what's being referred to there, we read about Jacob and Esau back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 25, they were twin brothers, eh, the grandsons of of, eh, Abraham and sons of Isaac. And the way things usually worked in an ancient culture was that when a father died, an older brother, who was in this case Esau, would receive his father's blessing and his father's inheritance rather than the younger brother, in this case Jacob. And that was particularly important for Jacob and Esau because in their case, the blessing that they would get from their father Isaac included the blessing that God had given to their grandfather Abraham. It was an accrued inheritance, if you like, the promise that God had made to Abraham that his family line would become a great, great nation. But in a change from the way things usually worked, God chose the younger brother, Jacob, to receive the blessing instead of the older brother, Esau. Now that's the background to Malachi 1. But even if you know that story... The question still stands, why does God choose that incident above any others to illustrate how much he's loved his people? It doesn't look much like an example of love at all, really, does it? See, surprises when you're reading through the Bible, they're often clues that are meant to make you sit up and listen. Listen. And the reason for this surprising illustration is that God isn't evidencing how much he's loved his people as, as, as we might expect him to. This isn't part of his spreadsheet of evidence. No, instead he's telling them how he has loved them. The kind of character of his love. What his love is actually like. See, think back to Jacob and Esau. They were, they were twins There was very little to separate them from one another. Nothing about Jacob, certainly, that made him particularly special or worthy. He actually turns out to be a bit of a crook. And so you see, the point being made is that God set his love on Jacob because God set his love on Jacob. And likewise, God set his love on Jacob's descendants, Israel, because God set his love on Jacob's descendants, Israel. See, his love is a steady and a fixed and a choosing or electing kind of love. Love that isn't tied to anything intrinsically special about them. Simply to God's choice of Israel as his people. And you see, when we take a step back and put verse two into the broader context of the whole of Malachi, well, it makes sense that God would want to remind his people of that. See, remember that God's people's commitment to him is fitful. And yet they think he's the one who's at fault. And so verse 2 here is as if to say, listen, you might be drifting from me, but you can be as sure as guns, I'm not drifting from you. Now that's what it meant for them then. What does it mean for us now? Well, for those of us who are Christians... God has also set his love on us. And he has done it in a Malachi 1, settled, unshakable kind of way. See, in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells Christians that God chose us before the creation of the world. God's love for his people, people like you and me, it has always been a settled, fixed, electing kind of love I'm conscious that that raises questions in many of our minds and hearts perhaps the question in your mind is is a philosophical question what about free will did I have any choice in the matter and for others the question is a pastoral question the question of the heart why would God choose me and not the friend or the family member I've been praying for for so long if those questions are in your mind and in your heart, then you aren't the only one. And I'd very happily chat through and pray that through with anyone who wanted to, to, to do so, if they, that would be a helpful thing. But it is just worth noting that in Malachi 1, as in fact in Ephesians, God's electing love isn't meant to unsettle anyone. It isn't made, meant to make us doubt God's character. It's meant to do quite the opposite. It's meant to give them certainty about God's love for them in the face of their questioning of him, their doubting of his trustworthiness. And listen, if they had reason for certainty, well, how much more reason do we have to be certain of God's unshakable, undeserved love for his people? Just look at the cross. While we were still sinners, writes Paul, Where we were completely opposed to him, Jesus died for us. Not because of anything outstanding or inherently deserving in you or in me, but because he set his love on us. So listen, perhaps you're a Christian and you're involved in lots of religious-looking stuff, but when you're honest with yourself, your heart isn't really in it. You're feeling kind of half-hearted, lukewarm in your service of him. Or maybe you're not quite there yet, but you can see how you might get there. Give it time. You can at least empathize with the question of verse 2, of whether God really is good, whether he is trustworthy, whether he is just, whether he is worth hitching my life to. That might be a result of of life circumstances. It might be a result of weariness in the Christian life. If that is you, then know that he hasn't drifted from you. He hasn't changed, and he hasn't changed his mind. He has set his love on you. His fixed and steady and unshakable love. So let me encourage you to let that love, that unwarranted kindness towards you, Warm your affections for him. I have loved you in an undeserved, electing kind of way, says the Lord. But, I wonder if that feels like quite a kind of abstract, amorphous thing to some of us. A God whom you can't necessarily see telling you that he loves you, that he's chosen you. I mean, it might sound quite good on paper, but what actual difference does it make to me, to my life, that God has chosen me? I wonder if some of us might be asking that kind of question. Well, that's what God turns his attention to next, in verses 3 to 5. He explains that his love has consequences. It makes a concrete difference to the people whom he has loved. It makes a difference both in the here and now, and it makes a difference in eternity. Let's just think about that briefly in verses 3 to 5, the consequences of God's love. Now, I know that we're well out of Christmas movie season. Christmas films are rightly reserved for the month of December only. That's the law. But one of my favorite Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. In the film, the main character, George Bailey, is driven to despair by his own life circumstances. But as he contemplates ending it all, his guardian angel shows him what the world would be like if he had never lived. How much worse things would be for those who are close to him. And seeing that kind of alternate reality, well, it helps him to understand the difference that he had actually made to lots of people's lives. And the reason I mention a Christmas film in mid-January against my better judgment is that that is something like the logic that God uses in verses 3 to 5. See, God tells his people in verse 2 that he's loved them. And then in verses 3 to 5, he shows them in vivid technicolor what things would be like for them if he hadn't loved them. What do I mean? Well, just look on to verse 3 with me yet i have loved jacob but esau i have hated i have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert now what's going on there well it's worth knowing that the esau's descendants who were called the edomites they weren't a particularly pleasant bunch they were greedy and they were violent and in fact, that greed and violence had been directed particularly against God and against God's people. And eventually, Edom, it was sacked, it was destroyed, and it was left in ruins. And so what we have in Malachi chapter 1 is, is two people, twins, Jacob and Esau. Twins who father two nations, Israel and Edom. And both nations have been sinful. They've both rebelled against God. But you see, as Malachi's writing, Edom stands in ruins. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem which had been routed and destroyed, has now been rebuilt. See, Edom have been judged by God as they deserved. But God's settled, unshakable love for his people Israel means that his judgment against them was restrained he didn't give them what their rebellion against him deserved and so you see god's love for israel has actually made a concrete difference and it hasn't just made a difference to their present situations it's also made a difference to their futures just read again with me verses four and five If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, the people of Edom have been judged by God. He's brought about their destruction. And yet that destruction was just a taste of what's to come. God speaks of another judgment. A greater judgment. Where Edom will not only be temporarily destroyed, but will be under the wrath of God, verse 4, forever. And the reason that it's important for the Israelites to clock that in Malachi 1 is that when that judgment finally comes, well, that won't be their fate. See, having had God's love set upon them will have made all the difference in the world. Now again, it's important we ask, what are we to do with all of that? What difference does it make to us? Well, again, remember the purpose of the whole book of Malachi. Malachi. It's a call to return to God, to stop drifting, and to commit ourselves to him in wholehearted obedience and love. And to achieve that, God reminds his people that he loves them. And he reminds them that that love has consequences, that he won't treat them as their rejection of him deserves. And the same can be said of those of us who follow him today. God has shown his love and mercy to us too. And it might just be worth taking a moment to, to, to just notch that up, to notch up how he has done that for you now. If you're a Christian, you're no longer enemies with God. You're at peace with him. You've been adopted into his family. You can approach him and speak to him as father. And you're part of a family of believers in a local church. See, we have each rebelled against our God and rejected His good and right rule over our lives, and yet, God has loved us, has set His love upon us, and hasn't treated us as our rebellion deserves. And as well as making a difference to our own present experience, well, being one of God's people has the most profound consequences in eternity. Because our God is a just God. And one day, everything that is wrong in this world will be put right. All evil will be judged. And in one sense, that's a wonderful prospect. And in another sense, it's a terrifying prospect. Because God's perfect justice, the justice that we do all so long for, actually means that we should be judged too. And, in fact, the description in verses four and five of, of of Edom, the terrifying description of what happens to that people, well, it is a description of what eternity should look like for all of us, and yet, if you are a Christian, if you are one of god 's people, well he has shown mercy to you, and you know that he has. Because the justice that ought to fall on you into eternity for your rebellion against him fell on his son. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. The good and right and just anger of God at human sin, at your and my sin, being fully paid for by Jesus. And so listen, if you feel that you're drifting from him, Starting to wonder whether it's really worth sticking with him at all, whether it's worth giving your life to him, or whether you'd perhaps be better just kind of hedging your bets. Try and maintain some kind of half hearted religion just in case, but mostly living to please yourself and not him. Well remember he has loved you. Undeservedly so. And I love that it's evident in your life already. And that will show itself ultimately into eternity. I wonder if you can see how the grasping that squashes half-heartedness in the Christian faith. Kind of obeying him, but always just pushing things as far as you can. Kind of giving to him, but only ever the bare minimum. Kind of serving him, but only because it's what you've always done. Look at how he's loved you look at the difference that love has made and will make to you and return to him. Now, the main implication of Malachi 1 is for people who have followed Jesus. But it does have implications for those of us who wouldn't call ourselves Christians yet. Because that justice I've just spoken about, well, it will fall on all who haven't trusted in Jesus for themselves. And so the question that leaves each of us with is whether we will acknowledge our rejection of Him. Acknowledge that by rights we don't deserve His love. We should face His judgment for our rejection. And yet claim His rescue for yourself. Ask Him to be your rescuer, your saviour. I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? I have set my unshakable, unwarranted love on you. And I have not, and I will not, treat your rebellion against me as it so deserves. What a saviour. Let's pray to him now. Our God and Father, we come before you in praise this evening. We praise you because you have loved us. You've set your love on your people, not because we are lovable, but because you have set your love on us. We thank you for the assurance that that gives and for the radical difference it makes, both to our present circumstances and to our eternities. And so would you please use these realities, the character and the consequences of your love, would you please use them to shock us out of any apathy, any half-heartedness that lives within us? Help us to return to you in whole-hearted obedience. And we ask also that you would please impress upon any of us here who haven't trusted in you at all the stakes involved when they decide whether or not to follow Jesus. We ask that even today someone would bow the knee before you and ask for your forgiveness for the very first time and receive your mercy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.